find uh, Luke chapter 10 in your copy of the scripture. And as you do, as I said uh, a moment ago, I trust that you had a great week of Thanksgiving. I know that we did. We got to go down to Biloxi, Mississippi and see the grandbaby. So a special treat in our lives. Uh, We as a church went to Biloxi after Katrina. Katrina in August of 05. And of course we were down there in August of 06. The area was completely devastated. Uh, Some of you in here were on that trip and could testify to that. And it's good to see that that town has rebuilt. It's sad to see how they have rebuilt. Uh, The casinos that were out on barges in the Gulf, uh, because they were blown in by the storm, the laws changed to where they could build inland, and they have built absolute palaces. Uh, Somebody asked me if we want enough money to pay off the church debt. And uh, I've got to confess to you that we didn't, that, that's never been a sin that's even been remotely a temptation of mine, uh, gambling. So uh, no, we didn't because we didn't put any money in. So you don't put any in, you don't get any out. But uh, you see those casinos and you see that they're like palaces. They're not designed to give you their money. They're designed to take your money. So if you've got money to give away for a casino, give it to us instead. <laughs> we'll gladly take it. But uh, I've got to tell you a story about Bluxy because I did not um, have the address. I texted Kevin Seeger said, do you remember the address of the house we rebuilt? Uh, he, he did not. So we got to hunting for it, and, and I actually found it. And... Uh, I've, I've got to tell you a funny story about that. It was so hot. I remember uh, Duke and Rosalie Hines were almost overcome by the heat outside, Biloxi in August. And we're rebuilding, and Dave Seeger and uh, Drew Redden went to get our construction supplies. They took a truck and a trailer to go get construction supplies in the middle of the day. And uh, while they were gone, they were gone a really long time, a long time. And we were like, where are they? And in the meantime, we're eating our little bag lunch, you know, you open up a little brown paper bag and we have like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and an apple and a soda. And they finally get back and we said, Drew, where have y'all been? He said, shh. You can't tell Dave that I told you. He said, don't tell you. And we said, what? He said, well, he saw the sign, the marquee of lunch specials at the Outback. And we've been at Outback. (laughs) We thought he was joking. He said, I'm not joking. He wanted to stop in at the Outback and eat lunch. And... (laughs) Uh, but anyway uh, it it was good to see that house still still standing strong Uh, so those who went and helped rebuild it still looks great and uh, but anyway uh, I want to talk to you a minute out of Luke chapter 10 at the uh, 
And I want to talk on the subject matter OCC and not what you think. But I want to talk on the subject matter Operation Christian Compassion. Operation Christian Compassion. Now, you may remember if you were there or watched any of it online, maybe a few of you did, the state convention uh, two weeks ago. The focus in the North Carolina Baptist State Convention this year was, Who is my neighbor? And of course, the motive for that theme was all the devastating hurricanes that we've seen this year, even affecting the residents of the state of North Carolina. And so as North Carolina Baptists, uh, and some of you here have gone on trips out east and helping people to recover, and those efforts continue. And so the focus at the state convention was on that and, of course, on disaster relief efforts that, that Southern Baptists have. But, but again, the theme was, who is my neighbor? We need to understand it's going to be a challenging Christmas for a lot of people around us who've lost everything. Now, in addition to that, every year we give to OCC Operation Christmas Child. Many of you pack boxes, and those are donated. And inside each of those boxes is a a gospel lesson in the language of that child or wherever that box is going. Also, there's Angel Tree buying Christmas gifts for families in need. Tonight, as you heard Kevin say a moment ago, we'll discuss our church budget and all the various ministries that are done in and through our church budget. And of course, the main focus we do at this particular time of the year is what? Lottie Moon. The Lottie Moon Christmas offering for international missions. And so with all of these different emphases going on, you know what a lot of people in the world oftentimes say about the church, right? Is the church always asking for money? Well, whether it's Angel Tree or OCC or Disaster Relief or Lottie Moon, ministry takes money. It takes more than that. It takes time and effort, sweat and blood. But it does take our resources. And the Bible says this is something we're actually to celebrate. God loves a cheerful giver. Now with all that in mind, I want you to listen carefully to a parable that the Lord Jesus told. Some think it's the most, uh, the most famous parable the world over, at least the second most. The parable of the Good Samaritan. Probably the prodigal son is the most well known. This is maybe the second. Some believe this is first. But at any rate, listen to the words carefully that begin in verse 25 of Luke chapter 10. And I want you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. There in verse 25, I want you to listen in the conversation that's going on between Jesus and an individual. It says, And behold, a lawyer stood up 
to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan... As he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. He said the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. You may be seated. Stuart Briscoe says of this story that it is one of the world's superb short stories, and indeed it is. We see here in this parable how important ministry is, and we see the truth that as Christians we are to help take care of people, people in need. James chapter 1 verse 27 says, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. As we look around us, the type of world that we live in today, we live in a fallen world, and as we look around at this world and at society, folks, we see needs everywhere. And one of the ways that we can be salt and light is to impact lives for the sake of the kingdom of God through ministry. It may be our ministry to somebody that's what opens the door to them to share the good news of Christ. We're to minister to the lost. We're to minister to the world. We're to be salt and light. But we're also to minister to one another within the walls of the body of Christ. In fact, Jesus said to his disciples in John 13, The world will know you're my disciples by your love for one another. So ministry to one another as well. 
And folks, I want to remind you, ministry does not have to be complicated. Sometimes it's just being there for somebody and helping them with whatever they need. It may be small or it may be great. I want you to remember the context of today's story. As Robert Stein in his commentary on Luke points out, this parable is probably meant to begin the context of it back in verse 21. What's Jesus do beginning in verse 21? He thanks God that God has hidden things. Would God ever hide things from people? Would God ever keep somebody from understanding? What's Jesus say here? He thanks the Father that the Father has hidden things from the wise and understanding while revealing things to babes. The lawyer would have been an illustration of someone who would have been considered the wise and the understanding. And yet he's totally blind and ignorant to even who his neighbor is. The lawyer gets his answer right in part, but he also seems to misunderstand that salvation is simply a matter of knowing the right answers. But Jesus, while commending him for his knowledge, then says, you got to do something with it. Go and do likewise. If you don't, you've only deceived yourselves. Now the lawyer should have left well enough alone at this point. But he's a lawyer. Got any lawyers in here this morning? Anybody? What do lawyers do? Nitpick the details. And so he wants to just keep egging the matter on. And so what Jesus does is tell a parable. It is a parable that was so true to life. In fact, there's a lot of people who actually think Jesus was describing a literal character. He may have been. We don't know. But it certainly was true to life. You see, Jerusalem is 23 feet 2,300 feet above sea level. Jericho is down by the Dead Sea. It's 1,300 feet below sea level. The road connecting Jerusalem to Jericho is 17 miles long. And in that 17 miles, it drops 3,600 feet. It was a road with sharp declines, narrow passageways, caves, and sudden turns. It was a favorite place for gangs and bandits and robbers to hide out. And they would attack travelers. Because especially travelers back then, what would you have with you? You would have belongings with you. It's estimated that there were 12,000 thieves in the Judean wilderness. Gangs roamed the countryside like packs of dogs, attacking unsuspecting travelers. Adding to the problem was the fact that Herod had recently laid off 40,000 workers. 
In the 5th century AD, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was still called the bloody way. In fact, down to the 19th century, people would have to pay off local sheiks to get protection while they traveled the road from Jerusalem down to Jericho. Folks, that's how real to life and how contemporary this passage is. Now the passage demonstrates for us that Christian ministry very clearly demands compassion, but the kind of compassion that intervenes and does something. And that's what we learn in this story. Compassion, yes, but it's got to be compassion defined by action. Now let's see how it develops. I hope you'll take notes this morning. First of all, I want you to see the principle that ministry involves reaching out to people who may not be like us. Notice his question, and who is my neighbor? Now he would have expected an answer like somebody just like you. A fellow Jew. Somebody in your circles. You know, ministry is easy when it's somebody just like us, isn't it? This guy was not prepared for what Jesus had to say though. You see the Jews had little to do with Gentiles. They saw Gentiles as the chaff. What's the chaff? That outer hard shell on a a head of grain that they would crack that off and they would toss the grain in the air so the chaff would blow away in the end. Uh, In in the air. Uh, Chaff was what was burned up. And the Jews saw Gentiles as being chaff that would be burned up in the judgment. There was actually a section of the rabbinical commentaries that they had written on the Sabbath laws that said if you were walking along on a Sabbath day and there's a wall, a rock wall that has fallen on somebody and they're in desperate need, their life is in jeopardy, on the Sabbath you are allowed to uncover enough of the rock to see if the person is a Jew or not. If they're a Jew, you're to uncover them. If they're a Gentile, you're to leave them there in their, uh, in their misery. That was in their rabbinical writings. Likewise, the Jews had little to do with the Samaritans, just like the woman at the well discussed with Jesus in, in John chapter 4. Remember the question that the woman asked Jesus? She said, how is it that you, being a Jew, are asking me for a drink of water since I'm a Samaritan woman? Now, folks, we need to understand the level of disdain that Jews and Samaritans had for one another. It went back about probably a good 500 years. Actually, all the way back in 720 B.C., 
There was the northern kingdom. You had Israel that divided in. Uh, remember, uh, in the 900s, they, they 922 divided in, into two areas. Instead of just being Israel, they became Israel, the northern kingdom, sometimes referred to in the Old Testament as Ephraim. Ephraim was one of the primary tribes, uh, and Ephraim had as its capital Samaria. That was the northern kingdom. And then you had Judah, the southern kingdom, and Jerusalem was the capital of the southern kingdom. This split happened back then. And in 720 BC, the Assyrians, not the Syrians, but the Assyrians, came in, overran the northern kingdom, killed a lot of the uh, Uh, the Jewish people off and they took some and deported them to Assyria and then they brought in a lot of foreigners to repopulate the northern kingdom and intermarry with the Jews who were still there. And so the Jews of the southern kingdom saw the the people of Samaria as being half-breeds. They didn't view them as being true Jews. 140 years went by. The southern kingdom was invaded by the Babylonians. They were carted off into exile to Babylon for 70 years. They came back the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. They came back. They were allowed to come back and rebuild the southern kingdom in Jerusalem and the temple. That's what they did. Well, their kinfolks from Samaria came down offering, came down out of the north country offering to help them rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. And the people of the southern kingdom said, no thanks. We don't want your help. And then between 9 and 6 B.C., the the Samaritans came down and strode bones out in the courtyard of the temple, defiled the temple. My point is, there had been long-standing bitterness and hostility between the Samaritans and the Jews. And it was very much alive by the time of Jesus. And so this lawyer would have never expected a story like this. None of them would have expected a story like this. And they certainly wouldn't have expected that a Samaritan would have ended up being the hero to the story. When you mention a Samaritan, the Jew would say, boo, boo. Think about our ministry, our view of ministry sometimes. Our view of ministry can be, let's just look after our own. Let's look after people like us and welcome people like us and reach out to people like us. Do we want to minister to people like us? Absolutely. The only problem comes in though, if that's the only people we reach, how in the world are we going to fulfill the great commission that says go into all the world? How are we going to carry out the great commission if all we ever do is minister to people that are just like us? It's a tough lesson for some people to learn. 
We've had our stories in America in the past about how tough it is. It was tough for the early church. Remember Simon Peter? In the book of Acts, the church is still pretty well clustered around ministering to Jews. The Lord brought persecution to scatter them. But then the Lord gave Simon Peter a vision of a sheep being let down, had unclean animals in it. And he heard a voice, rise Peter, take and eat. And Peter said, not so Lord, I don't eat things that are unclean. And the Lord said, don't call unclean what the Lord has made clean. Peter didn't understand all the ramifications of that vision. Initially, time the vision was over, he got a knock at the door and the person was saying, there's a a man by the name of Cornelius a Roman centurion he's a God fearing man and he's been kind to the Jewish people and he is wanting you to talk to him about Jesus about the gospel Peter goes with him I don't recommend Peter's strategy when Peter walked into Cornelius' household you remember the insulting words Peter gave him Peter looked at Cornelius and said, By the way, Cornelius, you know that it's not really lawful for a man like me, a godly Jew, to even come to the household of a man like you, a Gentile. Not exactly an evangelism strategy I would recommend. But Peter shared the gospel with Cornelius and everybody that Cornelius had gathered there, the Lord opened their heart, the scripture says, they came to faith in in Christ and then the Jewish people said to Peter, how dare you, the Jewish Christians said, how dare you go to the home of a Gentile? And so Peter had to recount to them about the vision And how the Holy Spirit came on Cornelius and the Gentiles just like he had on them on the day of Pentecost. They kind of shrugged their shoulders. They said, well, you know what? We didn't see this coming. Apparently God has decided to open the doors of his kingdom to Gentiles as well as to Jews. It was a tough lesson for them to learn. But they did learn it. They ended up carrying the gospel to their world of that day. Folks, one of the great challenges that we have as a church is that we're called on to be separate from the world so that we can be salt and light to the world and yet we are to go to that world with the gospel and in going to that world with the gospel we need to make friends with lost people. We need to make friends with some people who hate everything we stand for. Would you refuse to cut your neighbor's... Your neighbor's just come home from the hospital and he's an atheist and he hates Christians. Would you refuse to cut his grass because he hates you? How many friends do you have that are not like you? How many friends do you have that are not Christians? Do you have people in your circles of influence that you're praying for and building bridges to to take the gospel to them? 
It might be people very unlike you. We have a, th- th- this holiday season. Look out for people around you who have needs. We, ha- we have a woman in our, our church that was in Walmart one day. She's no longer a young mom herself, but she noticed a young mom very much unlike her. The woman wasn't trying to be nosy or anything. She just couldn't help to hear some of the conversation, this woman with her small children. It it was quite apparent this was a young mother who didn't know how to make ends meet. He was constantly having to put things back. And this woman in our church took a generous gift card out of her purse and walked over and gave it to that woman. Somebody very unlike her. This holiday season, I want to encourage you to pray that God would open your eyes and your ears to people who may be very unlike you. Second principle. Ministry demands a commitment of our time. Look beginning at verse 31. Now, 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 now by chance a priest was going down that road and when he saw him... He passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by to the other side. Here's a priest in the parable. It's debatable whether he was going to the temple or going home. Most likely he's going home. Remember what I said? A lot of people believe this story was an actual occurrence. May have been. But let's say he's going to the temple. He would have been so excited to have left home that day. You see, a lot of priests lived down in Jericho. Jericho was called the city of palms. At the time, beautiful city. A lot of priests lived down there. This priest would have been going to Jerusalem to take his shift at the temple. They had so many priests, they literally took shifts. Now I want you to remember the Jews had synagogues all over the landscape of Israel. They were like little satellite campuses all over the place in local communities where the people could go on the Sabbath and at other various times and study the Torah together. The Torah, the prophets, and the writings, the three main divisions of, their, of the Old Testament. So they would go to the synagogues to learn, but they would go to the temple. That was the main campus. They would go there for sacrifice. And priests got two weeks a year that it was their turn to serve at the temple. It was an honor to be able to do so. You would serve Sabbath to Sabbath twice a year. Let's say that's what we're to assume this guy is doing. He's going up to serve one of his two weeks. If he stops and takes time with this fella here, he's going to blow at least one day of his service at the temple. He's looked forward to this. He's looked forward for the last six months to be able to go up and do his shift at the temple. If he stops now and helps this guy, he's going to blow at least one of his days. 
on top of that, if it turns out this guy's dead, you know what? He's not going to be able to go at all because he's going to become defiled according to the Old Testament. You can read it in the book of Numbers. If, if you touched a dead body, you, you became defiled. He would have had to have gone through a period of cleansing before he could serve again. And so he would have wiped out his week altogether. So you can see what Jesus is intending for us to think about this guy. He might have felt sorry for him, but not sorry enough to risk getting involved. If on the other hand, he was going home from his temple service, maybe he just didn't want to take the time. He might have reasoned he was tired. He might have said, Lord, I've been dealing with people all week long. Lord, you know what I've been doing. I've been working in your house, in your temple all week long. I've been doing ministry. It's somebody else's turn. Let them do it. I just want to get back home now. Or since the Jews connected sin and suffering, just read the book of Job to see how Job's friends connected sin and suffering, that he might have thought, you know, this guy's suffering. He's done something in his life that he deserves this. And so these robbers that have left him half dead, this is God's judgment on his life. He deserves this. He got what's coming to him. Whatever motive we're supposed to see, the point is he ignored the man in need. The man who needed somebody to be a neighbor to him. I think of the famous case of Kitty Genovese. I told you about Kitty Genovese in a sermon eight years ago. You remember that sermon eight years ago? Sure you do. You remember that? I can call on somebody to come up here and finish the story for me, right? She was a New York woman who was stabbed to death near her, raped and stabbed to death near her home in Queens on March the 13th, 1964. Kitty Genovese had driven home from her job. She was on the late shift that week. She'd gotten off work. She was driving home. It was the middle of the night. It was 3.15 in the morning. And she went back to her apartment complex and she parked just eight, uh, just 100 feet away from her front door. Winston Mosley, a business machine operator, had determined earlier that night that he was going to go out and he was going to kill a woman. He wanted to prey on a woman. He said they're easier to kill because they're not as strong. They can't fight back. He rolled out of bed at 2 a.m., leaving his wife asleep, and he drove around to find a victim, and he spotted Genevieve. As he stabbed her and she began screaming, several neighbors woke up and heard her. One neighbor, Robert Moser, shouted, leave that girl alone. And so Mosley ran away. He got in his car. He drove around for 10 minutes. But he decided he was going to go back to the scene of the crime 
and finish the kill, killing. So he drove back, he raped Kenny Genovese, and he continued to stab her in an attack that lasted for 30 minutes. He stole $49 from her purse. Later investigation by, by police and prosecutors revealed that approximately a dozen individuals nearby had witnessed this. But nobody got involved. One neighbor wouldn't call the police, got another neighbor to call the police and said when interviewed and asked why, he said, I just didn't want to get involved. Psychologists have given this a name now. Surprise, surprise, they got a name for everything, right? Bystander apathy or bystander effect. Sometimes it's even referred to as the Genovese syndrome, named after Kitty Genovese. Diffusion of responsibility. Let somebody else deal with it. Maybe that's what this priest is thinking. I don't want to get involved. Let somebody else deal with it. The Levite, same way, just like the priest. Folks, aren't we like that to lesser degree? Some folks want religion where they don't really have to take time to fool with people. Lord, I work hard all week. Just let me go to church, do my thing, and then I'm out of there. Don't ask anything of me. Let somebody else do it. Somebody else can make that visit. Somebody else can teach those preschoolers. Somebody else can sing in the choir. Somebody else can fix a meal for that person that's come home from the hospital. Lord, I'm tired. I'm busy. Just let somebody else deal with it. I just want to go to church and be Fed. That's what Christianity is to them. Or here's another. Some Christians jump in vans or buses and go this seminar, that seminar, this seminar, this seminar, this group, this group. They're always getting fed and never doing anything with it. That's why Adrian Rogers, Mr. Southern Baptist, Bellevue Baptist in Memphis, Tennessee, he's passed away now. But he said, over every church door there ought to be a sign, danger, church attendance may be dangerous to your health. And what he meant by that is you're going to be held accountable on judgment day for what you hear in here. And some folks, all they're doing is adding up to the amount of accountability they're going to have to give one day. Because they're not doing anything with what... They're ever learning but never coming to a knowledge of the truth. You know, it's interesting after Jesus had been working with his disciples a short period of time. Now, before 
before the resurrection and the ascension and the great commission, before all that, remember what he did in Luke chapter 10 after he'd worked with them a little bit? He sent them out on a mission. It's like he's saying, okay, guys, I'm going to send you out right now. Now, I'll send you out again later, but you've already learned a lot from me, but I'm going to go ahead and send you out and test you on some of the things I've already discipled you in. Folks, we've got to accept that we've got to get involved and sometimes it means going out of our way. It's going to cost time. And you can't always plan things out convenient to you. I like what Henry Blackaby had to say in experiencing God. He said, we cry out to God, God use me, do something in my life, use me, use me, use me. And we're praying about things and we get up off of our knees of praying and our eyes and ears are not open to what happens next. Because sometimes what happens next in circumstances is God answering that prayer. It's like the fella that his house flooded. He's on the roof. He's about to drown. God, I'm your child. You said you'd look after me. Save me. A boat comes. He waves it off. No, I'm waiting. A helicopter comes. No, I'm waiting. He ends up drowning. He goes before God and says, God, you let me down. You said that as your child, you would look after me. Why didn't you look after me? And God said, sir, I sent you a boat and I sent you a helicopter. Ministries like that. God, use me. And then Amy or Jennifer call and say, we got a need over here in this kid's classroom. Kevin calls. I've got a men's group needs a teacher. A man in the church is repeatedly nominated by his church family to be a deacon. He says, no, no, no. Oh God, use me, use me. Do we not connect the dots with our prayers and the opportunities that we get and the invitations that we get? Folks, we need to make the connection. Notice the irony in this story. Here's a guy, if he's going up to the temple to serve the Lord, he's going to the temple to serve the Lord, and here's a need right in front of his nose, and he doesn't want to get involved. Sad irony in that, isn't there? Thirdly and quickly, ministry involves cost. Look at verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was when he saw him. He had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. After focusing on the bad guys in the story who are the religious guys, then here's this Samaritan. He's become quite famous. All over the world today we have good Samaritan hospitals, 
Good Samaritan schools. Up in Boone, we have Samaritan's Purse. You can go to the Holy Land on this very road down to Jericho, and there's a Good Samaritan Inn. This guy's become pretty famous, hasn't he? He wouldn't have been perceived as the good guy when Jesus first mentioned him. But he saw the need, and the need touched his heart. Matthew 9, Jesus says when he saw the multitudes coming out to him, he was moved with compassion because he saw them like sheep without a shepherd. He saw them as God sees them. One of the most famous sermons in North Carolina Baptist history was delivered by Dr. Mark Quartz, pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in Winston-Salem. He preached a sermon, still the most requested sermon of his that the church gets inquiries about. Joe Jones' eyes. He tells the story of a salesman's convention and the jingle is, if we can see the world through Joe Jones' eyes, then we can understand what Joe Jones buys. If we can see the world through Joe Jones' eyes, then we can understand what Joe Jones buys. And what, what was the motive at that salesman's convention? How do we get in Joe Jones' wallet? Mark Quartz changed it up in preaching to his church. He said, if we can see Joe Jones through God's own eyes, perhaps we can win Joe Jones to Jesus before Joe Jones dies. Seeing as God sees, he saw it touched his heart. He interrupted his schedule. You know what it'll cost? It'll cost you time. No way around it, folks. I'm sorry. Ministry costs you time and money. He had to get up close and personal. Don't be like the Sunday school girl, Sunday school teacher said, Class, what would you do if you saw somebody beaten, bloodied, teeth knocked out, scalp hanging from their head? Does anybody know what they would do? One little girl raised her hand. She said, Susie, what would you do? You want to tell the class? She said, I know what I'd do, uh, teacher. I'd vomit. You got to get up close and personal. We're not to be like the man who was so sick and tired of reading new. He was a heavy smoker. He was so tired of reading newspaper articles about the linkage between smoking and cancer. He called the newspaper office and he canceled his subscription. He had to sacrifice some of his belongings. Two denarii? You say, that doesn't sound like much. Listen, a denarii was a pay for a whole entire day. He gives up two days' pay for a stranger he's never met. Wow. Two days' pay for a stranger. Jesus asked the question, Who was the neighbor? Is it not obvious? So he answers that last man. And what did Jesus say? 
Go and do likewise. No way around it, folks. It's gonna, ministry is going to cost you and it's going to cost us as a church. I'm sorry, it is. It costs money to minister to people. It costs money to do missions. It costs money to send missionaries. It costs. But it also costs you your time, your effort. You've got to roll up your... Some things we can't just hire out. You have to roll up your sleeves and go and do likewise. This Christmas season, go and do likewise.